If you're hearing this, it means that you're subscribed to the public podcast feed and only hearing the first half of the conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Welcome to the Howl in the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. Howl in the Wilderness features deep and insightful conversations with renegade artists, philosophers, psychologists, and spiritual teachers who are working on the edge of dominant culture to recover and revive soul in people and the planet. On this episode, I speak with the uncategorizable Bio Okomalafe. Our conversation takes us on a far-reaching journey from the rich cultural soil of ancient Africa to the desolate plains of modernity and trails off on a delightfully blasphemous note, suggesting that within the figure of Yeshua hides the Yoruban trickster deity, Eshu. Please join us as we unravel and revel in the complexities of the trickster and their role in making and unmaking the world. If you'd like to support the podcast, consider joining the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Thanks for listening. Well, I'm here with uh, Bio Okomalafe. How'd I do with the pronunciation of your name? However you did, however you show up, it's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> well, it. It's a name that feels really good to say. Like it feels good in my mouth. Okomalafe. Yes. <laughs> Something about it. Yeah. I mean, it is a good name. It is a good name. Yeah. Uh, it's been kind of a long time coming um, that we meet. You've, you've probably been the most requested guest for the podcast. Mm. And um, people have come to my workshops and things, you know, regularly come up to me and say do you know bio's work you got to check him out but when i ask them uh well what does he do they find it really hard (laughs) (laughs) they find it hard to uh sum up so i'm curious how do you describe your job the work that you do Hmm. you know it's uh i wouldn't blame anyone who's struggling to to name what I do, because I don't know particularly what I do. Um, I, and it's maybe it's it's because there isn't some authorial um, stability here, like I'm the one doing it, or in the ways that we speak about my work or your work, it, it feels like an enlistment of some kind. And there's a drunkenness to the way that I feel called to show up in conversations today that straddle and dance in all the sites that have to do with identity and justice and the future and the human and coloniality and race and bodies and the animal and the alien. Um, so in a sense, my work doesn't have a name yet. And yet it's 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 um it's being done because it's futural and it's urgent at the same time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um one of my 
teacher Stephen Jenkinson often describes the work he does as spirit work. Okay. Which, uh, I don't know, maybe resonates with uh, the swirl of things that you work with. Mm. I, can, I can put it this way. I can put it this way that I've been telling the story of this entomological phenomenon called the ant death trap or an or the death spiral. It, and it's basically a pheromonic, you know, incarceration, as I call it, where the ants just keep going around in circles. They secrete pheromones to guide themselves around, to navigate the world. But sometimes they get stuck in a loop, and so they just go around in circles. They just keep going around in a circle, and they keep going around, and they get exhausted, and they die, right, in that circle. So it's called a death trap. But there are many ways that a break can happen in that in that circle. Um, maybe a foot gets stuck in there. Maybe a teenager or a child disrupts the ant uh, circle, or maybe a twig, or some kind of glimpse of a world that expands beyond their sensorial assemblage, or by infection, right? Maybe a fungus infects an ant and it goes away like a zombie ant and breaks out. I think my work is, I would call it the work of breaks, or the work of cracks, or the crack, basically, which is not entirely legible to the circle. And that's why I guess people struggle to name it because it is something extrasensory, if you will. It is out of our sensorial familiarity, how we speak, how we know things. It's kind of prophetic. Yeah, I'll stop there. Hmm. How do you understand um, prophetic? The way I understand yeah. it is uh, it's someone who the gods speak through. Oh, no. Some, something that needs to be heard for the time. Yes, yes. I mean, that sense inheres and might live through some of the things or some of the ways that I show up, but I make no attempt. I, 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 I do not present myself as someone who is oracular, you know, speaking from merely sourcing from an all an already finished realm and just translating to the material. Um, I resist. I'm no guru. I'm just, I'm a researcher and a thinker together with, right? Um, so I think of the prophetic as the invitation to look again, mm. right? It's right there in the etymology. If you trace it all the way down, so to speak, the idea of looking again, of re-examining is the prophetic. So the prophetic for me is not prediction, it's more like um, a fugitive invitation to reconvene time and temporality and space in ways that are strange and yet strangely familiar. Hmm. Yeah, that uh, etymology also makes me think about the word respect. Hmm. So is the work that you're doing a way of uh, showing respect for for the world, for the yeah. um for the ignored uh, spirits of the of the land and traditions, I'm thinking here of uh, you know the trickster issue, who uh, I've heard you speak about before, and I feel a real affinity with the the trickster spirit. Um, 
And that's one of the reasons why I was excited to talk to you because I, I sense that you also have quite a bit of trickster in you. Uh, <laughs> and I always have the most fun conversations with other trickstery types. Right, um, right. But is it right. something to do with respect, do you think, as well? Oh, brother, I'm loving you at this moment. This is beautiful. Yes, yes. You could you could think of, of I've never really sat down to think about the etymology of the word respect, but well, if, to look again, to, to look respect. again, yes, yeah. to respect. If 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 it is to let me put it the way Karen Barad puts it, that it is often the case that the world kicks back, mm. right? The world kicks back. Um, and that is to say, sometimes the prosthetics or the prosthetic arrangements, the ways that, and by prosthetic, I mean that which is outside of the thesis, right? That which supports the thesis, whatever that thesis is, an arm, a coloniality, progress, economic development, whatever the thesis is, there are prosthetic arrangements that, are, that that thesis is indebted to, right? Um, like the world, like black bodies, like slavery, like animals, like there's always some colonial assemblage excluded and appropriated and um, disrupted bodies, right? Um, but sometimes those bodies coagulate and become a crack, if you will. They become monstrous and they disrupt continuity, right? So they force us, and in some impersonal, infinitive kind of way, they force us to reconsider the terrain, the territory, right? What does it mean to be named? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to go forward? What does growth mean in a pandemic world? What does size mean when a, an infinitesimal crater like, a, like the coronavirus is, can upset entire economies and send billions of people to their homes? So that time when the world kicks back, you need to pay respect. And paying mm. respect is prophetic work. Mm. All right, good. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> We're done? Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I want to avoid the how question, for sure. Um, okay. Uh, but, you know, I would like, you know, I'm also hearing... Um, uh, some hints of the qualities of the trickster in, in what you say. Um, leading up to our conversation, which has been many weeks in the making, and thanks to your assistant for really helping out with that, juggle our schedules and yeah. Um, because you cover a lot of different topics, I think. So I was thinking, you know, what am I going to talk to Bio about? And so I've been listening to some of the conversations you've had and what's really emerged over the past couple of days is uh, the trickster. And I've been really tuning into that archetypal energy over the past few years, as I've been contemplating what is a good guiding archetype for a man at middle age. Uh, the time of the hero is over. Mm. And so, you know, I, I really started to, to look into it and try to find stories that spoke to a man at middle age and his um, the kind of new responsibilities and obligations that he might feel his role in the world. Mm. And uh, what I came to is, is the trickster. Um, and there's an American psychologist, Alan Chinon, who wrote a book called uh, Beyond the Hero. And mm. he, he researched thousands of fairy tales 
and he found that uh, the trickster was the predominant archetype in stories about and for middle-aged and older men. Mm. And, and that really spoke to me. And I, some of the qualities of the trickster, I think, are really helpful in being an uncle to younger people, a kind of mentor figure. Mm. Um, but I also started to think about our civilization and the place we are in the kind of the growth and evolution of Western civilization and how the cracks are really starting to show. I mean, mm. and so what's the archetype that's needed now? And I thought, well, maybe it's also the same archetype of the trickster, you know, this agent of change and um, overturning the status quo and old structures. And, um, and so I thought, well, look, let's talk about the trickster. And I would like to learn something from, uh, from your experience coming from Nigeria about the Yoruba uh, deity of the trickster Eshu. So I don't yes. know. I don't know much about him, but I feel like he has a lot of resonance with other trickster figures, particularly yeah. Hermes. Yes. Yes. So could you tell us something about Eshu and uh, the kind of role that um, he plays in your life? Of course. Hmm. In my life, I think Eshu disrupts the idea that life can be owned. In, in <laughs> Um, but, the limits but, of the English language, I know. Yes, of course, of course, of course, of course, of course. Um, one of my favorite stories to tell, among the many things I like to speak about when it comes to issue, is um, well, one 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 of the orikis, which is a poem, the Odus, the the poetry spoken about issue in the Ifa tradition, um, is that. Issue, one says issue, issue is, I'm paraphrasing here, it's, uh, but issue is, goes to the palace and it's too small for him. It's too tiny for him. But then he goes and lives in the seed in a kernel and now he can stretch, right? It disrupts the idea of space. Uh, or spaciousness, uh, or privacy. Um, another one says, if she throws a stone today and kills a bird yesterday. <laughs> Disrupting concepts of time. Time. But, the, but one of the most powerful stories and, and is written by Femi Yuba, who's a professor, I think still in the United States, but he's a Nigerian, Yoruba. Um, he tells the story of Eshu and his role in the transatlantic slave trade. And I think it's one of the most important stories. It's not part of the Ifa tradition, but to me, it's right up there with one of the stories that can be told about the trickster and that responds to your questions about archetypes and archetypal formation and their usefulness, so to speak, to times of transitions and transformation. Um, it, it said that when the ships arrived when the ships came. The god of war, who's also the god of metal, who's also the god of victory, so he has quite the resume, um, mounted up an insurgency against these, these um, uh, slavers, these traders. And he does this by rushing to the shore to try to outwit and kill and chase them away, basically, to win. And you know this guy would have had the, the upper hand because it's right there in his CV. He's the god of victory. 
Um, his name is Ogun. Ogun, hey, good. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Ogun gets there, but on his way there, he's intercepted by his brother, another Orisha, Eshu. Hmm. And Eshu offers him palm wine, basically just tempts him and says, hey, you know, let's take our time. We can do this in the morning. How about we do this tomorrow? So just rest for now, go to sleep, we'll continue. And so he drugs his brother, you know, with strong, the strong alcoholic drink called palm wine, local to places in Nigeria. And then he steals into the slave ships and becomes a stowaway, this liminal presence that travels with the slaves and creolizes the future, creolizes the new world, right? Mm. And I continually think about this story, you know, because it doesn't fit. One of the questions we can ask is from the perspective of moral stability. We can say, how dare you do that? Why didn't you save and restore the order of things? Why did you go along with this painful loss, this painful um, facilitation of, of theft, the theft of lives and bodies and communities and economies? Why did you allow this to happen? But we can only ask that question from, and justifications can only be premised or articulated from the positionality of moral stability. But morality is not exactly the only thing that makes the world. Ethics also makes the world. And I differentiate morality from ethics in, in this way. Morality is stabilizing, right? It's how we build settlements. And we need gods for settlements. It's within the context of morality that a hero emerges. But sometimes the nature culture that is implicated in a moral territory gets to the end of itself. That is another way of saying that our rituals, through which we ritualize the everyday, through which we name ourselves and the boundaries that divide me from you, me from the other, me from land, or how we frame the world. That those rituals become, they, this, we, we enter a situation that, that feels like diminishing returns. Our rituals become less and less productive right? They start to hollow out. It's, it's like the conversation about around novelty today. Newness and novelty means Apple is re releasing the next iPad or Vision Pro, right? Novelty is innovation and innovation is tweaking what we already know, pushing around the symptoms, right? Nothing really bursts through, right? So ethics, on the other hand, is flow, Ethics is how bodies come to matter, how bodies are continually in processual flows. And I think issue travels with the slaves to open up new spaces of being with the world, right? Um, there is no justification. Justification, again, is the luxury of permanence. But in, in moments of flow and transition and loss, you need the trickster to, uh, to attend to those moments, right? You need new kinds of gods when you come to the edge. The edge is too prolific for the hero. The hero can only do heroic business and work, uh, you know, within the context of stability. 
But when you come to the edge of things, the middling edge of things, the liminal spaces where transductive operations of different sorts are, are happening, transmutative experiences, we're shape-shifting, we're growing ears in our heads, we're becoming monstrous, then you need the trickster. In fact, not that you need a trickster, that is the trickster. The edge is the trickster. And so to the middle-aged person or to the persons, you know, like you and I looking today, how do I stabilize myself? I think those questions need to be held with a different sort of care, with a different materiality of care. Um, and I'll say more about that as we go ahead, but I, that's my response for now. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just... Uh offers a different story of the whole forced migration of these people. Yes. Uh, you know, um, getting his brother drunk, kind of foiling his plan, stealing away in the belly of the slave ship. Yes. Um, maybe in order to aid the, the movement of the people to this new unseen land. Yes. I mean, that to me, if issues anything like Hermes or other trickster figures, thievery, uh, deceit, um, helping with transitions uh, is all kind of in his wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. So not not out of character at all. Right. Nope. And nope. Like, why wouldn't Ogun kind of know that about his brother? Well, because a trickster is a shapeshifter, right? Mm -hmm. the, the trickster... Probably very, very charming. Right. Yes, incredibly charming. <laughs> yes, indeed. So it's probably the case that he felt, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, let's do this. Um, but then the trickster turns turns the idea of turning itself, turns in in the in the midst of turning and upsets our ideas of permanence and structure and identity and binaries, right? I, I came from Estonia couple of months ago, and I learned about the trickster in that country, which is called Vanapagan. The trickster figure is called Vanapagan. And I love the story of the creator making a world, in basically finishing the world and like dusting his hands and saying, it's done. And the trickster coming and, and saying, um, I'm not so sure. And what the creator of grandfather God of the Estonian people had done was to create this flat land. It was flat, you know, absolutely flat. And what the trickster introduced was crease, the creases and the bumps and the grooves, you know, basically running to one end of the entire structure and pushing in. And that's how mountains and rivers and life actually came to be. It's the trickster that makes the world, not the creator in this sense, right? So the trickster gave the opportunity for life to flourish, but also introduced hurt and pain and suffering in the very moment you're introducing life. So that, that's another animistic post-humanist way of noticing that we are always embedded within agonistic fields of, of flow, and tension, right? So that to expect that the world should meet our ideas of it, or should dance to our anticipations of it, or expectations of it, is to reinforce a coloniality that is, I, I believe, very strongly at its end. Mm. 
Mm. Well, the other thing is like, um, I mean, as as horrible and painful as the slave trade was uh, for so many people, it changed the world fundamentally. I mean, at least this part of the world. I mean, it had such an effect on the cultures in North and South America. I was I was introduced to the Orishas through a Brazilian church okay. uh, that had syncretized some aspects of Umbanda, which has its roots in Yoruba. Yes. And the Brazilians, they're like natural syncretizers. They don't seem to have any problem with cultural appropriation. It's just, okay, <laughs> these people are here. Let's bring them in and like mix not it just, all up. Not just the Brazilians, the Caribbean cultures, all of, yes, syncretic traditions all the way down. Yes. Which, so I, which, yeah. I, which I love. But mm -hmm. it, it uh, uh, so syncretizing, bringing in, inviting in, welcoming in, incorporating uh, that tradition um, has enriched that continent <clears throat> and, and the peoples in it uh, to such a great degree. And, and even like the, um, the influx of Africans into the North America changed the culture and gave us things like jazz and blues music and, you know, beautiful art forms. Um, so there's that duality of like the pain and the, the kind of the gift and the joy of it all. And yes, Yes, it's amoral in a way, right? And and that's another aspect of the trickster. I think is the amorality to be, mm -hmm. be beyond ideas of right and wrong. Yes, yes. I often put it this way that it's in the wake of the trickster's departure that we come to build ideas of right and wrong. But the, the trickster has to depart. The trickster has to burst through the veil. In order for us, we do it in the wake, in the eddies of the trickster's departure. That's how we stabilize and say, okay, this is how we will draw the lines and create a public. We will demarcate this space and call it justice. And then we will say that this is injustice. But the trickster's um, dismorality, if you will, right? The trickster's animistic wanderings needs to go before to make that happen. And, and and yes, you could say it's difficult for people to hear these tales, you know, to, or even to take a matter like cultural appropriation and see it through the lens of the trickster, right? Mm -hmm. Because from the neoliberal modernist subjective perspective, sub subjectivist perspective, you know, it's an evil thing. Mm -hmm. um, and then you hear elders like, uh, the Trinidadian author, Earl Lovelace, saying, you know, to articulate his concept of bacchanal aesthetics, basically saying, appropriate the technologies of the slaves. That if you are to go through these times, if you are to address the impasses of this time, appropriate the technologies of the slaves. And you hear an Afro-Martinican philosopher like Edouard Glisson write about the right to opacity, right? Resisting the idea that he has to be coherent or that our philosophies have to be coherent or transparent, right? Fitting within some Euro-American centric model. Right? So Coherence, these are the gifts. Yeah. Yes. Mean, like, like you have to have it all together. Yeah. You have to be a pure unit onto yourself. And that is deeply it, problematic. 
Yeah, and your cosmology and uh, needs to be all sorted out and uh, clearly delineated. I mean, that's like colonizing the spirit, which yeah. Yeah. when I enter into these other traditions, like the uh, Brazilian Umbanda tradition, I mean, there's no lines. It's all just a big kind of mix. It's a stew and it it's wonderful. I mean, it's so it just feeds my soul. And I just wonder, like, one of, well, one of the things actually I was thinking of this morning on my walk, uh, somebody had... Um, made a comment on one of my recent YouTube videos speaking with an author who uh, he's an American guy, um, kind of a renegade Jungian. And uh, he's ident he's um, made the correlation between what he sees as kind of the modern malaise or the kind of curse of modernity and um, the colonizer mindset. He's uh, he's made the correlation with the um, North American Indian idea of uh, Witiko, who is a, a kind of vampiric kind of spirit. Um, and so somebody was calling it out as a form of appropriation. And I mean, it, it's complicated. You know, I don't know the author that well and how much time he spent with, um, you know, native traditions and learning from them and all that. But it got me thinking about this idea that cultural appropriation is wrong. And I, I think that actually ups, upholds the kind of uh, the, the colonial project in a way of keeping everybody separate. And mm -hmm. I was thinking that, you know, um, us settlers on this land, wouldn't it make sense for us to learn from the traditions of the original people here if we're going to learn how to live in right relation with this place and the pre-existing people? Mm -hmm. So shouldn't the project be about us settlers becoming indigenized rather than seeking to colonize the people who are already here? Mm -hmm. So again, that's kind of flipping things on its head. Like mm -hmm. wouldn't everyone benefit if we did learn from the stories and traditions of this place? Mm. It's it. I'll tell a story that might, that I think brings my response um, to that brings it home in a in a way that might settle into the bones in a good way i feel it, this speaks to the limitations of concepts and the epistemic resources we deploy to respond to the very very well publicized sufferings of people minorities people who have been taken people who are still navigating a world that is essentially I don't want to say essentially, predominantly white modernist. And by white, I want to very, very carefully say to people who haven't heard me before that by white, I don't mean white people. Um, to reduce whiteness to white people goes against the cosmologies or disrupts uh, the, the work that I feel the cosmologists I'm a part of are trying to do. And it, it it's, an, it's an impoverishment of thought in a way. It's whiteness. To reduce whiteness to white people is whiteness in its function, right? Whiteness is a spatial temporal arrangement of bodies, a racialized arrangement of bodies that enacts an apartheid structure. And this apartheid structure is just as harmful to the oppressed as it is to the oppressor, right? Mm -hmm. But in so apartheid yeah. meaning, uh, am I correct in uh, understanding that apartheid means something about separating? It's it's a weaponized separation. Okay. Yes, it's it's the 
it's uh it's the pathologization of difference mm-hmm. right or thinking of difference as transcendent not imminent like bodies are continually differencing through uh, ecologies our, po- our porous boundaries are continually trafficking modernity doesn't know how to think in scandalous ways like that so mm-hmm. it it demarcates bodies and mm-hmm. In a very, 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 very roundabout way, those who have been demarcated, those who have been set aside and, and differentiated, um, learn to see that the only way they can flourish is to maintain those weaponized demarcations, right? The only way I've I've spoken to people, African Americans, um, other minorities in the United States. I remember speaking in the University, no, Middlebury, uh, Middlebury College in Vermont and speaking about my theory of transraciality. And I remember at the end of this, a young chap stood up and said, but isn't this letting white people off the hook? Isn't this letting white people off the hook? And I started to query that idea of letting white people off the hook and keeping them there in the first place yeah who put, who put them on the hook no it, it's it's not just about putting them on the hook is it's the duplicity of capture right in the very yeah. moment i hold you and i say you will give me back what you owe me i am also incarcerating myself within the logic of an economy that has also um, captured me yeah. right it's like this is what i call tricarcerality right we i hold you and it's it's the standoff situation i will not let you go until you give me what's mine but that also means i have to tether myself right. to an economy that, that is hollowing out right i have yeah. to clean my space at the seat at the table of whiteness right in order to have power you could say culture the concept of cultural appropriation which it came up uh, you know uh, from academic discourse in in response to stories about theft and the pernicious loss of lives. And you could say it's a form of care, right? Um, It's a reaching out, a gesturing towards the the moral burdens of having your lives taken away from you. Think about the Benin bronzes. Do you you know about the Benin bronzes? The artifacts from old Benin kingdom? in present-day Nigeria, which in 1897, you know, uh, you know, on the on the backs of a British expeditionary force, a retaliatory force, stole, first of all, killed the people of the Benin Kingdom with guns, heavy artillery, and then took away their king. This is in present-day Nigeria, um, took away their king and then took away um thousands of artifacts and then you know from the from their the village and the palaces basically taking the memories the lives the spirits and the histories of the people and then putting them in museums in Europe and, and the United States mm-hmm. where they still are so that there, there has been this momentous movement to try to get those things back Right. But this is how the story goes. And this is part of my analysis of cultural appropriation, that it doesn't quite do enough. And I think this is what you're sensing. Right. 
it kind of still depends on the epistemic resources of the colonizer to make, you know, to make new moral demarcations or agreements, right? Um, one of some of those artifacts went to the Louvre, you know, uh, the museum in in the Netherlands, in in the UK. It went everywhere. Um, a couple of years ago, a journalist in the Economist. I, I cannot remember this person's name, wrote an article about the haunting of the museum, the British Museum, by the artifacts that were stolen. Mm. Mm. Right? Yeah. That that those those things, that those objects were doing things. Now, like remember I said the economist. So it was a serious, the way that we consider serious journalism, yeah. right? It was serious journalism. Not woo-woo. Not woo stuff. It wasn't New Age today. It was the Economist, right, of all publications, and they documented cases where the guards would lock the doors, step out for a moment with chains, where where those precious artifacts are, those catastrophic objects are. Step out for a moment, come back, and the chains are broken, or someone pointing at one of the artifacts. Which, which feels like a powerful force field. And then suddenly the light goes out when you point. And when you put your hand down, it comes back on. And when you point at it, 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 it goes out again. It, it's like the whole place was glitching and the guards, you know, at risk of being fired, you know, spoke under anonymity, would say things like, these things are alive, right? And I think this is what cultural appropriation does not know how to address it doesn't know how to think about restless objects that that when you're thinking about power scenarios you you give in in making your analysis you kind of give power or reinforce power as the as the property of the dominant force but you don't know how to think in terms of the trickster and that power is always is sometimes a stowaway feature right that that in in being stolen, I'm also upsetting your paradigms. That there's no such thing as uh, a supplanting force that isn't already a crack, an opening, uh, you know, an invitation to be broken further, right? And I think this is what you say that issue creolized the the new world and opened up new spaces of exquisite possibilities. So cultural appropriation is only good within a certain matrix of moral considerations. It doesn't go as far as noticing that the world is a lot more promiscuous than its analysis can confer. The promiscuity of the world, I love that. Yeah. I've also been thinking about how, um, from where I'm sitting, it seems like there's a a growing interest in polytheistic religions and forums, even if it comes to like the back door of something like astrology, which has become incredibly popular. Um, and I think like that's a response to you know many hundreds of years of monotheism. Mm-hmm. The thing about monotheism that I haven't heard other people talk about, but to me, it seems so obvious that monotheism attempts to 
kind of collapse all of the archetypes into one figure. And that doesn't um, speak to the plurality of our own soul. And so over the years, I've seen Christians try to uh, turn, well, before my time, of course, but turn Christianity into a more polytheistic religion, kind of covertly, you know, with the Trinity, first of all, and then, um, you know, um, bring Mary in, but she gets like a little a shrine off to the side or round back. Uh, but then the saints are kind of like deific in some ways or daimonic. Um, so they're trying to speak to this need for people to to engage with the plurality of, of gods. Uh, but it hasn't been successful, obviously, mm. and people are still trying. <laughs> <laughs> trying mm. to turn trying to turn Jesus into some kind of wild man mag magician and um you know trying to bring out his more trickster features and things but maybe it's time just for uh for us to return to something a more nature-based polytheistic form of worship that um connects us to place and and speaks to the plurality of our own soul mm. I mean but then we ask well where does that come from you know, do us uh, white people like a people with a, and I the way I think about white people is uh, people without color. Uh, so people who don't have a lot of richness to their character and their traditions, where maybe that's been erased or, uh, you know, mm -hmm. so that's, that's the way I think about whiteness. Um, so I don't consider myself a white person because I'm a very colorful, colorful character, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and Plus, I don't think my ancestors would have called themselves white either. Mm, mm. Uh, but I'm just wondering, like, do you have any idea uh, around that, um, the resurgence of polytheism or the yearning for polytheism? Because right. I certainly see it. And, and you've been traveling around. You speak to a lot of people. I mean, yeah. is this something that you see too? And, and if so, what might that be speaking to? Or mm. in a prophetic sense, what do you think it might be leading toward? Um. I think the domain of the God of civilization, the gods of civilization, that domain is experiencing collapse in a sense. Um, the, the God of the Holocene, of, um, of macro farming and extensive agriculture and globalization is coming to meet the gods of pandemics and viruses and stowaway creatures and microbial entities and bacterial activisms and animistic vitalities. And so in a sense, I wouldn't even say it's a returning. Um, the monocultural God of, the, of civilization has always battled with these other entities, mm -hmm. right? Try to flatten in the wilds, right? I grew up in a monotheistic um context if i know that's hard to believe but even though the yoruba people say there are 400 orishas and one right and one is always the prospect that not not only that we had we may not have got everyone in the pantheon but it's impossible to say with any sense of finality that this is the number of orishas that exist right uh, orishas so, are like, super deities Right, so four hundred is just like a, a big number, you know, more fingers than we have to count. So it's pointing toward uh, a, 
incalculable number. Kind of it's, like it's a, it's a way of saying that. Yes. Yeah, like Vishnu's um, ten thousand cobras. Yes. It's just like yes. it's a, it's a number too big for us to really comprehend. So yes, it's like, like it, four hundred. It's not four hundred and one, but four hundred and one. Right. The <laughs> there's a pause. It's like and there's always the and one. It's it's like the it's like the English um, alphabets. Um, which of course isn't uh, historically English, uh, but but the English alphabet has what twenty six? Alf- it has twenty six alphabets. It's twenty six, right? Letters, I, I think so. Twenty six letters, time I right? Twenty six <laughs> letters, yes. But it wasn't always the case. I mean, there are many. After Z, there's ampersand. Not lots of people know that, but the and symbol was the twenty seventh, right? Um, and I like that. I like hmm. that. <laughs> I like that the yeah the extra one is the and the and no the connector. right the twenty seventh is the ampersand, but that's not usually talked about. So so that's the idea here that, in a sense, the plural has always accompanied the monotheistic the the plurality. Um, James Hillman would would say that um, gods are part of furniture, and that. You know, they never really went away. They've always been part of the discourse, the conversation about what it means to be alive and doing the things that we do now. But, you know, um, I I think of the, the things that are happening today, um, I think go beyond the um, either one or two, you know, conversations we're having, either one or many conversations we're having right either the monotheistic or the pluralistic i think i think in a sense there, there's something more than that happening um so there's the pantheism pantheism is god in everything right god one, is one god in everything one god in everything yeah. one god in everything you could argue about you could even say that pantheism is the many gods in everything actually hmm. um you could have that interpretation but there is a different one. I'm attracted to this idea of panentheism. Um, so it, panentheism is not just God in everything, God intercarnated as everything, but that God isn't a stabilized entity that just inheres everything. It's, it's that God is processual flow. What it means to be God is still being made, just as creation is still being made. It's right. right. So, so it's more than a a, a gerund, a continuous. It's it, it's more than it's more than a statement about how many gods, right? It's it's that even how we think about gods in terms of um, a single one versus the many is also part of this ongoing godding that the cosmos is wrapped up into, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you think people are kind of yearning to um, to re- recognize that way of uh, experiencing the world and being in the world? I think there's a gesturing in those directions. I, I, it's like lightning, how lightning formulates itself. It, it's, it's, we're, we're creating step ladders here and there. But the idea here is that, um, and you spoke about being uh, resisting the idea of being white, 
right? The politics in the United States may frown upon that statement. That how dare you um, resist the epitaph of being a white person, right? But I also understand that gesture of saying whiteness was the subtraction. Whiteness is the, mm. is the abduction, basically. The slice that was taken away from the welter and the sweltering heat of everything in skull becoming, right? It is, it is just as much a capture of what we now today call white bodies, um, which have always been colorful. To be alive and to be embodied is to be colorful. You cannot but be colorful. You cannot but be imbricated with microbes and bacteria, even right now. So in as much as we want to speak about white supremacy, we must also take into consideration white syncopation, right? Syncopation. <laughs> right. Syncopation is the change in rhythm, mm -hmm. like in jazz, when it takes on a different, it, there's some disruption, and then it takes on a different lilt, it becomes different, right? Well, it's often so syncopation, a, change. Is often a counter rhythm as well. A counter rhythm. There you, you know? go. Yeah. There you go. Something it adds a little flavor to the straight up four four beat. There yeah. you go. There yeah. you go. Syncopate is to be like kind of off rhythm. Off rhythm, off kilter, off center. That yeah. the world is so off center. Eccentric. Yes. Off centric that it's ecstatic that our bodies are outside themselves so you know many people would like to um codify white bodies as essentially this and in order to do you know they do that to the level they're willing to think of themselves as identitarian which was a survival move right if we're to thrive in this context then we need to adopt an identity and then in adopting an identity we also deify and reify and lionize the other, which is the white other, the white supremacy, right? But white supremacy has never been collapsible or reducible to isolated white bodies. White supremacy is a paradigm, is a nature culture, a thought pattern, right? It's a ritual, an algorithm. So here then, um, when I say white syncopation, I'm saying even whiteness is migrating, even whiteness is traveling, even whiteness is losing its beat, right? And dropping the ball and doing things that it wouldn't ordinarily do under its own, the burden of its own logic. And in this sense, I would say that in ways that are more than intentional, more than anticipated, um, bodies are yearning for something else. And you can think about this as a panentheistic moving, a syncopation, a cosmic syncopation. And cosmic syncopation is an aliveness, an attunement to different kinds of beats, which calls for different kinds of gods, which calls for different kinds of tricksters, which calls for different kinds of mig migrancies. This was an excerpt of a longer conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Thanks.